Hi everyone. I'm glad that you've taken some time out to come and meet with God through prayer and worship and the preaching of his word. And it's a great privilege to be able to share with you again today. This past week, I took a couple of days leave to be with my family. Uh, both girls were off school and Michelle was on leave on Wednesday and Friday. So we took some time out to be together. We had two car park picnics, one down at Sea Point and uh, on Friday at Fishhook, as well as doing a bit of tidying around the house. Of course, at that point, I felt led to work on my sermon. I realized that we hadn't had much family time, and I thought it would be good for me to follow my own advice to you a few weeks back. It's important for us, where possible, to rest and to do some simple things that give us pleasure, help us to focus on others, and to focus on God. Because of that, my next sermon in First Peter isn't quite where I need it to be, and so I thought I'd return to last week's passage on the Lord's Prayer. I feel a bit bad about interrupting our series, but at the same time, prayer is one of the things that we've been focusing on in our classic WhatsApp group as we work our way through Kurt Bjorklund's book, Prayers for Today. I hope you're finding these devotions as encouraging and comforting and challenging as I am. It's so good to be stretched through the prayers of the Bible, as well as through the prayers of great men and women of the past who've walked closely with Jesus. Last week, in looking at the Lord's Prayer, we had a look at the three requests that we make of God about God in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And this time I thought it would be good for us to back up a little bit and look at the opening phrase of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in Heaven. Before we do that, let me just give some background, which I think might be important for us. I think it's true to say that prayer is one of the hardest aspects of the Christian life. And thankfully, I'm glad to find that I'm not alone in thinking that. No less an eminent pastor as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, Of all the activities in which the Christian engages and which are part of the Christian life, there is surely none which causes so much perplexity and raises so many problems as the activity which we call prayer. It's not just that prayer causes theological or philosophical problems, it also causes some real practical problems too in how we pray. Uh, Billy Graham once put it this way, speaking about prayer, he said, we never get it licked. Well, in these verses that we know as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us a pattern for prayer. He says, when you pray, and notice the word when, not if, when you pray, pray like this. The Lord's Prayer is recorded twice for us in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 11. That doesn't mean that Jesus only taught it twice. He probably gave his followers this prayer on a couple of occasions during his three years of ministry. But I think these two contexts in which we find Jesus' prayer are very important for us. Let's look at the context of Luke's gospel for a moment. Luke tells us, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, 
When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus replies by giving what we know as the Lord's Prayer. I said a moment ago that I struggle with prayer. Does it work? Why does God answer some prayers and not others? How can God answer my prayer for clear weather tomorrow and the farmer's prayer that we get some rain? And many other questions too. But the answer to the question, why should I pray when I don't necessarily understand prayer, is simply this. Jesus prayed. If Jesus found it necessary to pray, then surely so should I. And then the second context for Jesus' prayer, as it's found in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives us his prayer within the Sermon on the Mount, and it's within the context of how not to pray. You can go away and read it for yourself, but one of the things that Jesus cautions against is vain, repetitious prayer which is a bit ironic, really, because sadly the Lord's Prayer itself has often been used in a shallow, vain, repetitious way. I don't know about you, but I can rattle it off in about 12 seconds without giving it much thought at all. And so it's important to realise then that this is a pattern that Jesus is giving us here. In this prayer, Jesus isn't giving us the exact words that we need to use as a ritual every time. He says, this is how you should pray. Not, this is what you should pray. In other words, the Lord's Prayer is the scaffolding for prayer, not the building itself. It's really a series of headings that will launch us into further prayer. But it's more than a pattern too. Pastor John Stott said this about the Lord's Prayer. It's not simply a liturgy to recite. It's more even than a pattern to copy. In the Lord's Prayer, the essentials of the Christian faith and the Christian life are clearly set forth. Well, with that brief introduction, let's have a look again at Matthew chapter 6 and verses 9 to 13. Jesus says, This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. Our Father in heaven. How many of you remember sitting in English class and doing lessons on letter writing? Do you remember having to write letters to imaginary people? And there was the informal letter, Dear Pete, and there was the formal letter, To whom it may concern, Dear Sir, Madam. And a lot of time was spent on learning the correct way to address someone in writing a letter. When it comes to the Lord's Prayer, many people think that this first line has to do with the correct form of address, the right etiquette or protocol for prayer. This is the correct form of address for God. But that's not the case. What this first line does is to orientate us in prayer. 
I remember when global positioning systems first came out in cars. You know, GPS, those little gadgets in cars that tell you where to go and when to turn and will ensure that a whole generation will lose the ability to read a map. Well, when those first came out, I remember that my dad was down here in Cape Town on a business trip from Johannesburg, traveling around with someone in a car down by the waterfront, and he asked the driver where they were. And the man said to him, well, we're driving on Dock Road, but according to the GPS, we're on Robben Island. Obviously, the GPS needed recalibrating or whatever it is you do to them. In fact, that's often what happens to me when I'm driving and I miss the turn. The GPS says, recalculating, recalculating. That's what we do when we pray the first line of this prayer. We orientate ourselves. We begin with God, which is the most important place to start in prayer. Remember the quotation from Tom Wright that we read last week. Prayer that doesn't start with God is always in danger of concentrating on ourselves and very soon it stops being prayer altogether and collapses into the random thoughts, fears and longings of our own minds. The American writer Flannery O'Connor once prayed, Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What I'm afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. The Lord's Prayer starts with God. And when in prayer we take the time and the trouble just to focus on God, it dramatically changes the content of the rest of our prayer. And there are three things that Jesus wants us to bear in mind in praying the first phrase of his prayer. Just to shake things up a little, we'll look at them in reverse order. Firstly, Jesus reminds us that God is in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Now, Jesus isn't speaking here about the location of God, that he lives way out there somewhere. No, Jesus is speaking about the otherness of God and the power of God, the transcendence of God, that God is just totally different to me and way beyond what I could ever think of or imagine. That's really important. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament had this advice about prayer. He said, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. God himself says in Isaiah chapter 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, 
How far is that? Is that from here to the sky? Uh, no, it's the edge of the universe, which isn't a fixed point, because as far as we understand, the universe is constantly expanding. If we wanted to send a space shuttle to the edge of the universe, and we sent it at the speed of light, which is 300,000 kilometers a second, it would take the space shuttle 15 billion years to reach the edge of the universe. As far as we can understand, there are about 100 billion galaxies in our universe. Each galaxy contains 100 billion stars. That means that the universe contains about 10,000 million 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 stars. That means there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. In Isaiah chapter 40, God asks, To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. I've sent you a companion clip to the sermon this morning. Uh, for those of you who are listening elsewhere, you can find it on YouTube. If you type in the words cosmic eye into YouTube, you should find a three-minute clip that zooms in and out of an employee lying on the grass outside the Google headquarters in America. If you find a clip about ancient Egypt or American conspiracy theories, you've clearly got the wrong clip. It's an animation that tries to capture what it would be like if we were able to zoom out from this lady's face to the edge of the universe and then zoom in again all the way to subatomic level. You see, not only is God incredibly big, he's also incredibly small in that he holds the atoms of our bodies together. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 and he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. After you've watched that clip, I want you to ask yourself a question. Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your assistant? The psalmist prays in Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. The Latin word for be still is vacate, which is where we get our word vacation from. In other words, God invites us to take a holiday. He invites us to stop being God for a while and allow him to be God instead. Sometimes then, when I'm sat in prayer, I just think about that picture of our galaxy and whereabouts I find myself in the universe. I just start from there and then move on into prayer. Just to say, that's not the only picture I keep in mind. 
God doesn't ask us to look inside ourselves or within our own mind's eye to imagine him. He has given us his word, which reveals who he is to us. And prayer, then, is always our answer to what God has spoken to us through his word. But surely what we've just spoken about presents a problem, then. If God is so much bigger than I am, then why bother to pray? God's plans must be more perfect than mine. It might not seem like it from my perspective, but if he is so much greater than I am, it stands to reason I won't always understand what he's doing. It also stands to reason that I can't advise him, so why bother? Also, if he's so much greater than I am, then he already knows what I'm going to say anyway, so why bother to tell him? Well, it's so interesting that Jesus didn't see the greatness of God as an obstacle to prayer. Quite the opposite, in fact. Jesus saw the greatness of God as an encouragement to pray. Remember, this prayer comes in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching us how not to pray. He says in the verses just before this that the pagans think they'll be heard because of their many words. But, Jesus says... Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. God's greatness and foreknowledge stand right next to the encouragement to pray. God knows what you need before you ask, so pray. How can this be? Well, because of the second word that we need to look at in this opening sentence, the word Father our Father in heaven. In the end, prayer is about relationship. When my daughters were a lot younger, I remember one day watching them through my study window playing outside in the garden. I can't remember exactly everything they did, but I do remember them coming inside and saying, Daddy, guess what we've been doing? I didn't cut them short and say, don't bother to tell me, I saw it all through the window. No, I wanted to hear from them what they'd been doing. I loved to hear from them. I wanted them to speak with me and me with them. In his book on prayer, Philip Yancey writes this, Why pray? Evidently, God likes to be asked. God certainly does not need our wisdom or our knowledge, nor even the information contained in our prayers. But by inviting us into the partnership of creation, God also invites us into relationship. God is love, said the Apostle John. God does not merely have love or feel love. God is love and cannot not love. As such, God yearns for relationship with the creatures made in his image. One pastor says, Prayer is not about informing an otherwise ignorant God or persuading an otherwise unwilling God. Prayer is about developing a relationship with the Almighty. Now, sadly, the word Father is a difficult word for some people. There are folk listening to this who do not know their earthly fathers, there are those who have emotionally absent fathers, those who have abusive fathers, those who have drunkard fathers. 
But I guess that even if we have very good fathers, there's always a gap, isn't there, between the father that we have and the father whom we long for. And when Jesus told us to address God as father, he was thinking of the best possible father, the father whom we long for. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses looks back over the Israelites' trip from Egypt to the promised land, and he says this, You saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. One of the writers that I read recently said that she used to feel guilty if at night she fell asleep while she was praying. But as a parent, she understands. She says, what parent wouldn't want her child to fall asleep in her arms? But there's another important aspect to the word father. When Jesus said, call God Father, he wasn't implying the universal brotherhood of men and the universal fatherhood of God. No, we can only call God Father out of our relationship with Jesus. It's very interesting that in the Gospels, whenever Jesus prayed, he prayed, my Father. He never prayed, our Father. Jesus, as God's Son, had a unique relationship with God. And the only way that we can address God as our Father is through a living relationship with Jesus. Jesus always addressed God as my Father, except once. You remember? From the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus took my sin and your sin on himself, he was separated from his Father. Jesus was forsaken by the Father so that we may never, never be forsaken by the Father. Jesus gave up his right to call God Father, a right to which he had every right, so that we who have no right whatsoever may call God our Father. In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John marvels. He says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And we could change that around slightly to say, How great is the love God has lavished on us that we should call him Father. In one sense, then, this isn't a prayer for anyone. This is a prayer for disciples for those who follow Jesus, for those whose lives have been changed by him, for those who've accepted his death for them. Of course, if you're not a Christian and you wanted to become one, the Lord's Prayer would be a great place to begin. But this is something for those who have received him, who have believed in his name, and so have been given the right to become children of God. But then finally, the first word in the prayer, the word our, our Father in heaven. This little word our is actually a very significant one. If you look carefully through the prayer, you will see that the word our appears four times, the word us appears four times, the word we appears once, and the words me, my, and I do not appear at all. Why does Jesus give us the word our? 
Is it because he expects that this prayer will be prayed by congregations in churches and cathedrals? No. Jesus has just said to us in verse 6, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father. So Jesus envisages us praying this prayer privately. But even when I'm praying this prayer alone, I am to pray our Father. This prayer must always be prayed with the wider community in mind. You see, sadly, much of 21st century Christianity has become very individualistic. So we talk about my own personal relationship with the Lord, or my personal quiet time. We sing songs like, Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. But while it's completely true that Christ dwells in us as individuals and he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, one of the things he has given us is the gift of one another. As we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2, God is building us together into a temple in which he lives by his Holy Spirit. We're not individual bricks scattered around a building site. We're to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people belonging to God, not a group of disparate individuals. Individual Christians are not God's body on earth. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul speaks about the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, Now you, plural, are the body of Christ, and each of you, is a part of it. You see, we need one another. No one Christian has all the gifts. God has given gifts to his body, the church, which is why we're missing one another at the moment. We're missing the mutual ministry and edification that takes place when we're together. This is one of the reasons I'm so excited about the possibility of us meeting up in small groups it's why life groups are so important. Often in our big meetings together, time and space and other constraints mean that only a few people get to exercise their gifts. But when we meet in small groups, we have the opportunity to practice what Paul envisaged in 1 Corinthians 14, when he said, When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. When I pray, Our Father, I'm reminding myself that I'm part of a great cloud of witnesses, some who have gone ahead of me and some who are still with me on earth today. I'm part of a worldwide body, the church of God, whose true number is known by God alone. And that means that on the one hand, I shouldn't be engaged in anything that breaks down the community. To engage in anything that breaks down community, gossip, jealousy, discord, disunity, is to be fundamentally at odds with the purposes of God. And on the other hand, I remember that as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, the weaker and the most hidden parts of our body are actually the most essential. 
I learned to value and cherish every member of Christ's body and the various gifts and abilities that they have, which are given by God to them to build me up in my faith and are given by God to me to build them up in their faith. It's such a precious thing to be part of the body of Christ. So just one little phrase for us as we begin a new week. I'd encourage each of us at the beginning of each day to begin our prayers in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father God, what a wonderful privilege to be able to call you our Father through all that you did for us in sending your Son, Jesus, into the world to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died to bring us back to yourself. Father, we thank you that you are full of compassion and loving kindness towards us you remember that we're just dust, and you know our anxious thoughts and our worry and our concern, particularly at this point in human history. Lord, all of us face various challenges as we come into this week, and we thank you that we've had the opportunity just to focus upon you and your greatness, that you hold this earth on the tip of your finger as one would hold a contact lens, that you are so mighty and yet you are so small. You understand our individual DNA, the thoughts that we have and why that we have them. You are so transcendent and yet so imminent. And we come as the Pinelands Baptist Church Classic Congregation and visitors with us today as well. And we pray for your particular help in this week that lies ahead. We think of those who are stuck alone in a little flat somewhere, unable to see family and friends who can't even get out because of lockdown and the concerns that the staff of their retirement village have about their health. We think of young couples with small kids who have to balance working at home with looking after children and just the time and the energy that goes into that. We pray for those who find themselves in huge financial difficulties, whose income has been cut, or whose jobs have been lost. We think of those who mourn the death of loved ones. We think of those who have to take care of others who are ill. We think of those who are ill at this time, and Lord, just the added burden that coronavirus brings to us, that even the simplest tasks are just have that added level of difficulty. We ask, please, for your strength and for your help. We thank you that this time of difficulty is doing things within us, that you are indeed purifying us and refining us, so that our faith can be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. We pray that this time of difficulty would encourage us to value 
the members of our community, that we would indeed pray our Father and remember one another in prayer before you, that it would draw us closer together to family and to friends and to brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we also pray, Lord Jesus, that this time would draw us closer to you, that as some of our other props have been kicked out from underneath us, that we would find you again and find that you are enough. And so as we go out into this week, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his face upon you and give you his peace. Amen.